Welcome to my novel, False Alarm, a free serialized audiobook read by me, the author, Heather Stallings. Music by Mark Bruce. This book contains content best suited for adults. Please visit my website, heatherstallings.com. Chapter 8 The next morning, Saturday, the day of the firefighter exam, the house was in chaos, but Kate was floating around after her dinner with Pedro. Her extra energy and guilt had sent her into a cleaning frenzy. She was undaunted by the ransacked living room and the throw pillows eviscerated by sterling moss, feathers floating in the air like snow. Christmassy, Kate said to a bewildered Camille, who was holding up her tiny hands to catch the feathers. Sterling, wiped out from his dissemination of their living room, lay peacefully in the corner, looking at Kate, showing the whites of his eyes in that very cute way that always got to her. He was on his dog pillow, something he turned up his nose at unless he knew he was in trouble. Part of it was her fault. The dog trainer had insisted that if they made continual eye contact with him, he wouldn't be so naughty, sniffing crotches and snatching mozzarella sticks that Sandy planted on the arm of the sofa. Kate felt that continual eye contact with a 90-pound animal in a household with two small children was ambitious. Most mornings when Consuela opened their front door, Sterling Moss did a nosedive for her crotch. But now and then, without notice... Sandy would decide that Sterling needed discipline. Those times, Consuela opened the front door to Sandy restraining Sterling with a choke collar, shouting commands, Down, boy, hurry up, in a tiny voice. Good, Sterling, stuffing pepperoni treats into his mouth. This is what we're trying with Sterling today, he'd tell Consuelo, never breaking eye contact with the dog. Kate guessed that Sandy took Sterling's failures personally. Sterling was meek, neurotic as a show dog, afraid of the voice on the answering machine, and generally afraid. There were birds not hunted, things left undone. Sandy was certain that Sterling was only biding his time. After all, every evening Sterling would run out in the backyard and flush Mike, the neighbor's cat, from the bushes. Proof that an instinct was there buried in the everyday burdens of a city dog. Like Sterling Moss, Sandy retreated every night to the backyard, Sterling to flush the cat, and Sandy to chop wood in his Home Depot metal shed. Wanting to give Sandy his personal space, Kate never entered the shed. She envisioned it as dank and smelling of rain, clipped grass, and swollen paperbacks. She avoided that part of the yard, afraid that if she got too close she might hear the rustle of Irish newspapers or the slosh of a rum bottle, dark secrets too burdensome to the delicate balance of her life. But Sandy would emerge from the shed relaxed, with an armful of wood. He'd make a fire in the living room fireplace almost every night, unless, for air quality control, the city had prohibited it. He felt that he needed to comply with the city, he wanted no black marks against him when his civil servant application was reviewed. Kate was certain they would find nothing. 
She racked her brain to come up with something, anything. But he was a regular Boy Scout. Sea Scout, really. That morning, Sandy appeared in the kitchen in a shed mood. He had not yet asked her about her evening. He might have forgotten about it. He was happy because he was confident that he would pass his exam that day. Lately, he and Kate rarely shared the same mood, and in particular, a good one, so it made Kate uneasy. His good mood turned hers, his presence putting a pin in her fantasy, the conversation she had going with Pedro in her head, the one where she told him about her life growing up with the wayward Virginia and how she'd felt that she always had to be in control. She wanted to ask him why it was so obvious that she wasn't having fun. But that station snapped off in her head. She began obsessing that her mother was arriving in a few days, and the house was foul. They had one bathroom, and Kate didn't enjoy sharing it with strangers, especially her mother's boyfriends, who'd leave whiskers in the sink and the toilet seat warm. It's filthy, Kate said, storming around holding a bottle of Windex like a gun. It was the only cleaning product Consuelo ever used, and unfortunately, the only cleaning product that they had in the house. They went through Windex like they went through organic whole milk, that and paper towels, which Consuelo used to dry the dishes. Kate had decided to hire the brawny boys of the Castro to clean on Christmas Day. They cleaned wearing G-strings, but Kate had heard they were thorough. But they would need more than Windex. When she'd interviewed the boss man, he was fully clothed and looked as if he could carry a piano on his back. She had at first been suspicious of his smooth hands. Gloves, he told her, a bit snidely. Obviously. Kate knew no mother who took the time to don rubber gloves. That's why his hands look like that and mine look like this, she thought. Her knuckles had started to crack from the cold. She'd been mortified as they walked through the house taking inventory of the cleaning supplies. Kate and Sandy did not even own a mop. Must be in the garage, she'd assured him. The boss man explained that they cleaned in G-strings so they wouldn't get bleach on their clothes. Maybe that was Consuelo's theory, too, Kate had thought with some relief. Still on her cleaning rampage, Kate set down her Windex, picked up Sandy's dirty socks, and threw them into the fireplace. Gus took the cue and began throwing toys and newspapers into the fireplace as well. The insect problem is unacceptable, Kate yelled up the stairs to Sandy, who was getting ready for his exam. First the fleas freeze, now we have ants. The floor moves. And our Christmas tree is infested, Kate went on, as Sandy rolled down the stairs, fast and lumbering as a freight train, with Camille tucked under his arm. Take them away, please, Kate said. She couldn't look again. The frosted Christmas cookies that she and Gus had hung on the Christmas tree, a rare Martha Stewart moment, the colorful Santas and stars and candy canes, were covered with ants. What would your mother think, she asked him. Her voice shook on the edge of sobbing. She felt the shadow of Sandy's mother, who anesthetized her household ants with lemon juice, pulverized rose petals for potpourri, and could fold fitted bed sheets into phyllo dough triangles. Sandy handed Camille to Kate and quickly plucked the cookies from the tree and lobbed them into the kitchen garbage can. Did you mail the Christmas cards? Kate asked. She had written and addressed 75 cards, 
30 to people from his office. Sure, he said, shaking the ants from his hands, then wiping them on his jeans. But she knew he hadn't. Maybe it was intuition, or maybe it was because she was looking for reasons to be mad at him. Let it go, she told herself. We don't have to send holiday cards every year. But getting the children to pose for the picture, faces animated and without smudges, sterling moss between them and grinning, had required a Herculean effort that she did not want wasted. Then writing out all the greetings, happy holidays, Sandy, Kate, Gus, and Camille, and Sterling Moss, too. Such enthusiasm it had taken, licking and stamping, licking and stamping, the cramp in her hand, Camille trying to climb her, her coffee gone cold. She would feel better if she was certain that the cards were in the mail. With Camille still on her hip, Kate went down the stairs into the garage. It had been a poor show of faith to go check, Kate knew, but sure enough, the red envelopes, licked and sealed, were still in the back seat of his BMW. Kate marched up the stairs, clinging to Camille. Sandy was at the refrigerator pouring vanilla soy milk on his Captain Crunch. He'd been opposed to Kate's efforts to incorporate soy into their diet, until he'd accidentally used it as a creamer one morning and discovered that the fatted vanilla flavor tasted much better than nonfat milk. You lied to me, Kate whispered, cramming Camille's chubby legs into the Johnny jump-up that was hanging in the kitchen doorway. I was going to do it this morning. They'll get there. I didn't want to make a big deal. The big deal is that you lied. What else would you lie to me about? Kate asked, wiping the clean counter with a sponge and sticking the box of Captain Crunch, still wide open, back in the pantry. Kate knew she was being harsh. To her knowledge, Sandy had never lied to her. She had fallen for his goody-two-shoes character. He trusted everyone. He gave handfuls of coins to every homeless person he passed. He even gave 20 bucks to a man who came to the door claiming car trouble and didn't laugh in his face when he came back again. The fact that he always answered the door, Kate hid inside, and listened to the Jehovah Witnesses and Redwood Forest activists was testimony to his earnestness. He had even reported the $400 he won playing video poker in Reno, but the thought that he could lie, that there was this quality she didn't know about him, made her mind spin. What was out there that was out of her control? Should small lies be given less weight? She remembered how she'd once caught a bookkeeper who'd been kiting receipts. Kate had first stumbled on a small lie, her son didn't go to the school she said he did, and then one thing led to another. Gus appeared in the kitchen. Mommy, I'm thirsty. I want some juice. Kate yanked open the refrigerator and grabbed a box of Welch's grape juice. She jabbed in the straw and handed it to him. It was a white lie, Sandy said. I didn't want to upset you. Not white, Kate said. White is when you tell me that I don't look fat when I ask you. You've never looked fat. You know what I mean. Sandy plopped his cereal bowl on the table, splashing yo soy over the sides. I wanted to avoid the tongue lashing, that's all. But it's still a lie. Lying to prevent embarrassment, lying to avoid a tongue. I can't believe you're this concerned. Kate grabbed the ropes of the Johnny jump-up to stop Camille's incessant ponging. Camille shrieked. So, as long as you're not under oath, it's okay, Kate said. Do we need to get a judge to come over here and swear you in every morning? 
I'd like to remind you, Mr. McCabe, that you're still under oath. Is that what it's come to? Daddy, you're hurting Mommy's feelings, Gus said. I'm sorry, Sandy said, slapping his knee with his hand. Kate, I'm sorry. And Kate felt that he was sorry, but it was a battle that she hadn't wanted to win. He'd lied to her. He was capable of lying. Would she always forgive him in the way she forgave Gus for whacking Camille after he'd repented in the corner for 30 seconds? Gus knew better, too. Was sorry too easy? Kate took Gus and Camille to her office after Sandy left the house for his exam. She was behind at work and thought she might be able to get some tasks off her desk while the children milled around, enjoying the holiday decorations. It was always the fantasy, achieving Brazelton touchpoint moments while accomplishing something. Kate was deep into urine minutiae. It was the time of year when she was the most needed. She wired money, opened IRAs and children's trusts that had 1231 deduction deadlines, and led the crusade to find secular, non-aggressive holiday cards, which she signed and mailed to the athletes. She'd master the boys' signatures. Kingsley's looked like a cursive X. Peter the Red's was illegible. And J.P.'s had the upright, loopy quality of grade school penmanship. Sometimes she wrote, With love, J.P., just for kicks. During December the athletes always needed a lot of cash. Peer pressure was heightened to a frenzy. What to buy the significant other was foremost on their minds. Last-minute splurges meant selling off securities. It was a period of poor planning and penalties and short-term capital gains. Athletes she hadn't heard from in months dropped by in droves for cash handouts. Many were inspired to donate bell towers to their churches or build gymnasiums for their high schools. Kate took calls from athletes wanting directions to the nearest Charles Schwab branch in, say, Chevy Chase, Maryland. She sweated and consulted maps. She licked envelopes and drank too much office coffee and wrote letters to Mississippi churches and North Dakota high schools. She ate rotting apples from the office fridge and wondered what went on in these places. A few athletes insisted on composing the generous gifting letters themselves, so Kate reviewed them, eliminating explanation points and other excessive punctuation. For some reason, she had a hard time convincing them to set up IRAs and children's trusts for various DNA-authenticated children around the country before year-end. It'll save you $60,000, Kate would tell them as she FedExed more applications. When they arrived in person for cash handouts and holiday cheer, she'd corral them in her office and stand on her desk, waving the application, the signature lines all highlighted in yellow, but most attempts failed. It was the time of year when the athletes, bombarded with glossy catalogs, cold callers, and Victoria's Secret million-dollar bra possibilities, could not find enough places to spend their money so they sent holiday gifts to Sports Financial. Kate's office bulged with zippered footballs stuffed with toffees, autographed posters, crates of Harry and David pears, garbage cans full of red and green popcorn. She hoped that Gus and Camille would be awed. It had been a slow boat from the office lobby. Gus had insisted on pushing Camille in her stroller without Mommy's help 
and then knocked over two elves and a papier-mâché reindeer from the lobby display. Kate's desk was piled high with papers and coffee cups. This is messy, Mommy, Gus said. Camille pointed to a fishbowl full of red pistachios from Georgie Porche. Nice, she said. Camille was talking. It hit Kate like an epiphany, a touchpoint moment if she ever saw one. She wished Sandy had been there to see it with her. How much was he going to miss by not being at home? Pretty, aren't they, Kate said, lifting Camille up to touch the bowl. Kate set Camille on the carpet and checked her voicemail as Gus dug styrofoam peanuts out of gift boxes that Kate had started to open but had abandoned when she ran out of time and interest. She had ten voicemails, the first from Pedro. Hi, Kate, he said. I had such a nice time with you. I need to talk to you about something. Give me a call. Kate froze. He'd left the message late last night, and since it was Saturday, she didn't know whether she should wait until Monday to call him back. Was calling on Saturday outside the confines of business? Hmm. Sandy was a smart guy and would probably pass his exam. He would quit his job at the law firm, and they'd have a tough time paying their bills. She needed this deal. Peter the Red and J.P. did most of their signing after hours. J.P. would go for it, she thought. She considered for a moment that she should wait until that evening when Sandy could take the kids. But maybe it was better if Pedro heard the kids clamoring around. He would see that she was unavailable. She was responsible, a professional, and this would dampen his innuendo. The phone call would stay above board. Kate dialed. The phone rang. She thought of Pedro on one knee, slipping the shoe on her foot. That wasn't sexual, was it? Gus stopped dumping styrofoam peanuts on the floor and looked over at her. What is it, Mommy? Nothing, Kate said, smiling at him. Pedro's answering machine picked up. She tried his cell phone. He carried it sticking out of his back pocket like a teenager's comb. She pictured him reaching behind himself to grab the phone, holding it with a finger and thumb like a toy. Yo, he said after two rings. Hi, it's Kate McCabe, Kate said with spring. A cooing Camille pulled up on Kate's leg and swatted at her breast. Little flower, Pedro said. You are so... Are your children listening? Kate caught her breath. He knows, she thought, and it's not making a difference. They're here, but... Oh, sorry, he said. Can we talk about cars? Kate scooped Camille onto her lap. She wanted him to finish. You are so... She would never get it back the same way. Even if she asked him later, she knew he would fumble it. Once in college, she'd given Sandy an essay on some Hemingway short stories she'd slaved over, and he'd left her a long message late at night analyzing it. You are so... It had started. The intimate tone of his voice that could not be recaptured. And she had accidentally deleted it. She would always regret that. I hope I'm not interrupting, Pedro said. Not at all, Kate said. A Christmas present for yourself? She unhooked her bra with one hand and held the writhing Camille with the other. Kate refused to wear nursing bras. She was never able to line up the nipple with the peekaboo hole. Pedro laughed. JP said you guys can get some good deals. I can, Kate said, thinking that JP would hate this. 
He would somehow turn it around that he'd told Pedro to call her for the paperwork, when the truth was that J.P. knew nothing about buying cars. Kate wasn't intimidated by the cheery, wet-combed car salesmen. She managed to get them to stop talking long enough to set her terms. They were nothing compared to the agents, with their run-on sentences and vibrating ties, who talk for hours without a breath or a blink and would keep refilling your Diet Pepsi until you had to pee so badly you couldn't think straight. Car purchases weren't a matter of negotiating. Kate wished she could take credit. She simply didn't negotiate. The vehicle was to be loaded with every possible and impossible extra for a price she set from extensive Blue Book research, or she would take her client and his cash elsewhere. As Camille suckled, it occurred to Kate that Pedro could be buying the car for his mother or girlfriend. Maybe it was for Laura, the mysterious name he'd uttered when Kate had first called him. Kate would be able to tell from the color and model, more so the color. She was an expert on the psychology of cars. White, silver, and bikini yellow were gifts for females. No one ever gave black or red as a gift. Red was a show-off. Black was jealous. Models were tougher. From Kate's experience, quarterbacks bought sleeker cars, Jags and Beamers. Baseball players bought more muscular American vehicles. And the Hummer... They all still wanted the Hummer, even though it had been discontinued and disgraced. A guy wins the Super Bowl, and what he really wants to say when Disney asks is, I'm going to buy a Hummer. Sometimes Kate was wrong. She'd been blown away when Z. Pitt, a 280-pound linebacker for the Cowboys, had purchased an itty-bitty Miata when she'd balked. Those curves are so soft and female. He'd said he'd like to feel his knees against the steering wheel. Kate, sometimes an armchair psychologist, thought it was separation anxiety, something to do with being in the womb. But they all bought cars sooner or later. When Sandy's firm had offered to buy him a car, Kate had been touched that he'd said a sports car wasn't him. She liked the idea that he was above all that. Maybe an SUV that has room for the kids and the dog, he'd said. Then he came home with the black Beamer, which really threw Kate because he wasn't the jealous type at all. Maybe now he'd take the kids around in the fire truck, in the back swivel seat, the mother of all crotch rockets. What kind of car are you looking at, Kate asked. I was thinking a Corvette, maybe red. That's so Clarence Thomas, she blurted. Pedro could afford so much more, a rare thought when it came to professional athletes. Babyface minor leaguers drove Corvettes. Middle-aged men who packed guns and binaca drove Corvettes. Pedro hadn't struck her as wanting a muscular vehicle. So vanilla American. She'd had higher hopes. Something exotic and wingless. Maybe it was just her aversion to Corvettes. Every time she saw one, she touched her temple and canceled. In high school, she'd occasionally cruise downtown Spokane with boys who drove tricked-out cars that looked like Corvettes. Maybe they were Corvettes, their fathers. She recalled the chewing gum stuck on the floorboards and the bourbon in the tab cans and how her jeans pinched her waist at her navel. Since then, she'd get a whiff of aqua velva and think back to when a car's pine air freshener doubled as fuzzy dice. The taste of cherry lip smackers on her lips. A sip of bourbon, 
cold hands squeezing her breasts till she flinched. As the responsible one, the accountable one, she'd always cut herself off. The thrill had been real, but always fleeting, like defective fireworks falling off in the dark. Because she knew she had to get home, she would plead curfew and still get home before her mother. Kate sensed there was more to Pedro's Corvette than a flashy car. Clarence Thomas? Pedro was laughing. What do you drive? Kate hesitated, relieved that he was amused. The client is never wrong. Poking fun at a man's car preference was probably second-guessing his manhood. I'm a bad example, she said. I drive a minivan. I might have known, mispractical. I've got two small children and a large dog, and I don't have unlimited funds. Don't Corvettes have a back seat, he asked. Kate glanced at Gus, who was stuffing his mouth with green popcorn. It wasn't just two kids and two car seats. Children expanded, like exploding pampers in a swimming pool. It was the cheddar goldfish, the sippy cups of grape juice. Kate, who often spilled, even used a sippy cup for her coffee while driving. The bottles of soured breast milk hidden under the seats for weeks. It was impossible to explain to someone who didn't have children. Trust me, it's of no use, Kate said. I've got my heart set on the red Corvette, Pedro said. Like the song. You deserve it, was almost out of her mouth. It was what she said to all of them, but she stopped. She wanted to understand. Why are cars so important, she asked. Do you have to keep up with your teammates? Is that it? I can afford to buy a nice car, Pedro said, a hint of insult in his voice. Of course you can, Kate said. But why the obsession? The way I run around finding cars for you guys, you'd think I was finding eggs for your sperm. What's the message everybody's trying to send? Pedro was silent. Camille was asleep, lips pink with sucky blisters, head arched back. Only the unpleasant sound of Gus stepping on styrofoam peanuts could be heard, like feet crunching live eggs. Pedro sighed. The message is, you're out. You made it out. Okay, Kate said, pulling down her sweater. She stood, phone cradled under her chin, and placed Camille in her stroller. She reached behind herself and hooked her bra. She could appreciate the boys from the projects making it big, hoop dreams and what have you. But not everybody comes from poverty, she said, tucking a Winnie the Pooh blanket around Camille. And everybody wants the car. Wherever you come from, you made it out, Pedro said. You need something that reminds you. Kate was silent, considering this. My dad always wanted a Corvette, Pedro said. You can afford to buy him anything. Corvettes are everywhere now. They're nothing. When he died in 89, they were something. Kate gulped. I'm sorry. That's okay, Pedro said. I wish you could have met him. I'd like to hear you talking back to him about the Corvette. He'd howl at Clarence Thomas. He liked a feisty woman. I should learn when to be quiet, Kate said. No, that would ruin you. I can't wait to take this tacky car down Highway 1 past Devil's Slide. We'll have the windows open, the ocean right below us. You'll come along for a test drive, won't you? To check out my safety skills? I can do that. Kate said in her most professional voice. The cliffs were eroding at Devil's Slide, a skinny hairpin road, 
but that would not be her biggest danger. And little flower, Pedro whispered, yes? She no longer had a problem answering to this name. Are you wearing black stockings? Kate felt the blood rush to her face. She jammed her hands into the pockets of her jeans. Camille was asleep in her innocence. Gus, not quite as innocent, but still innocent, whacked at the empty boxes with a solid chocolate bat, courtesy of some baseball player whose name she couldn't remember. Uh, no, Kate said. The floor of her office was completely covered with green and red styrofoam peanuts. You remind me of the school teacher I used to be crazy about, he said. She had this kind of reddish hair and small white hands. She seemed so sad, like you. Sometimes she wore these black stockings. No one had ever described her as sad. She wouldn't have described herself as sad, exactly. It was more of an exhaustion, a feeling of pushing herself all the time. Sandy didn't see the sadness in her. He didn't even say, a penny for your thoughts, when he came up upon her staring out the window. She had warned him once that some Monday morning he was going to find her in the basement, painting pottery. He'd only laughed. What? And miss your investment meeting? Maybe that was it. She was sad. She wouldn't have put that name to it, but there it was. Did you get my box? Pedro asked. On to the next subject, as if he often put his finger on a person and touched something that was missing. What box? In the context of their discussion, Kate thought, present. Since her inbox was not discernible through the clutter, her mail was piled on top of her file cabinet. Kate grabbed a large shoebox-sized box addressed to Kate, no last name, with a Guerrero Street return address, and ripped off the brown paper. It was, in fact, a Nike shoebox stuffed with receipts. At the bottom were some Merrill Lynch statements and Empire Sports documents, Randy Nestor's company. Can you help me? Pedro asked. Kate pulled out a receipt. Big Nate's for $269? Groceries at Diamond Heights Safeway for $422? Help me figure out my finances, he said. Don't you need these receipts for taxes or something? Taxes? She hated to tell him that these receipts for slabs of beef would be of no use. But he was asking her for help. Trust, according to I Hate Selling, meant you were there. I'll see what I can do. The car, too? Kate straightened her back. She felt every notch in her spine. Of course. I think this is going to require another accounting meeting, Pedro said. She laughed. In another dark restaurant? I think it was perfect last time. Call me. I will, Kate said. Bye. She hung up the phone. Gus was whacking the boxes. Come on, Gus, stop that. It makes me crabby. Camille snorted in her sleep. Gus took a bite of the chocolate bat. Kate picked up the phone again. She needed to make an appointment, ASAP. I think he's feeling too much pressure from you. It's probably the reason he's choosing to move into the firehouse, Dr. Fuller told Kate, who was on the shrink's couch within an hour of talking to Pedro. Consuelo had taken the kids to the park for some overtime pay. Since it was Kate's job to make sure that Peter the Red was getting the proper help, it was only logical that she test out Dr. Fuller's skills again, just to make sure. What about Sandy lying to me, Kate asked. Is that irrelevant? 
Kate stared at the ceiling and thought about doing a few ab curls. She had given up her afternoon at the gym for this. Today, Dr. Fuller wore the same plain gray suit, even on a Saturday, with a formal scarf pinned fastidiously at her neck. Kate was certain it was a shrink trick. Dr. Fuller was trying to be unmemorable. Years later, someone would ask Kate to describe the shrink, and she would have to say, I don't recall. Are you saying that this is some sort of cowardly divorce? Kate asked. Why are you calling it cowardly? Why are you calling it a divorce? You called it a divorce, said Dr. Fuller. Kate pulled on her thumb, trying to crack the knuckle. Is it common for husbands approaching 40 to want to move into firehouses? In your experience. I wouldn't say common, but it's not unusual. Not unusual. Kate tried weighing this assessment, an assessment that probably cost her $15, as her knuckle finally cracked. Her fingertips felt frostbitten with the hot, prickly sensation of thawing. All I'm saying, Dr. Fuller said, is that your husband's under too much pressure. You set very high standards, all these lists and things, and he needs to get away. It's nice that he has that option, Kate sat up. I'll tell you about pressure. Here's the snapshot. I arrive home after 10 hours at the office, into the eye of the storm. The dog has torn apart the diaper pail. Gus and Camille are clamoring for dinner. The tip of my $100 kitchen knife has mysteriously broken off. And Sandy's upstairs trying on fireman's thermal underwear. Meanwhile, he tells me that I shouldn't be so shy around the athletes and really go for it. Dr. Fuller pointed a finger at her. Are you saying that you want to quit work? I'd like to know that I could. The shrink frowned. She was on to her. Kate did not want to get into the hard truth that was so unmotherly. She loved work, though she would love it more if she were respected as an equal, as one of the boys. And she did not want to have to shoulder the entire burden of supporting the family financially while also managing the household. It wasn't as if Sandy wanted to be the house husband. He wanted to be a dilettante. But she would never admit to her darkest fantasy of staying at the office all seven days a week while some motherly woman stepped in as her twin, doing the errands and playing in the sandbox. Then Kate would arrive home at the most precious of hours, before bedtime, with everyone bathed and fed. She might be arrested for thinking that. What's going on at work? The shrink asked. Nothing. That's how it always started. Nothing. Then it catapulted into divorce and despair. I need to buy a Corvette for a potential client, she said, for something to say. He's a nice guy. A nice guy? In what way? There were things that you didn't even tell shrinks, Kate thought. She told herself that under no circumstances would she mention the shoe. He says, please. Do you feel that he's more courteous than Sandy? A little, Kate said, feeling herself slide into the trap. But I don't see why that's relevant. More polite and maybe more understanding? You really have me pegged as a tramp, don't you? I'm trying to understand your relationships with men and automatically you assume it's sexual. Kate's face burned. Are you wearing black stockings? I don't think that quitting work would be healthy for you. I think you need to be in a place where you're being admired. 
We would appreciate all your exercising if you stayed home. Admired? How could this shrink in her rat hole office, who'd probably never sat in a crowded movie theater or shared a pitcher of beer, make such assumptions? Obviously, the shrink knew that she didn't want to quit work. She doubted that the shrink herself would want to drive carpools and clean the mice out of the garage. She thought of Pedro and her shoe, which had seemed so petite in his big hands. What was missing from her life? Stay at work, Dr. Fuller said. Maybe you'll get to ride in a Corvette. Vowing not to see Dr. Fuller again, Kate walked to the local grocery store in hopes of surprising Sandy with his mother's jello salad on Christmas Eve, also the day of her meeting with Randy Nestor. The big day was less than a week away, and it would be here before she knew it. Kate bought a box of lime jello, a can of pineapple tidbits, not chunks, her mother in law had been very specific, a jar of maraschino cherries, two pints of whipping cream, whole milk cottage cheese, a bag of mini marshmallows, and eight rolls of toilet paper. Kate hoped that she wouldn't screw up. Making jello was not a skill passed down in her family. As she lugged the two bags of groceries up Castro Street, a bike and two strollers rolled past her. She liked that Noe Valley was full of children. Fertile Valley, it was nicknamed. The day was cool and windless. The fog had settled in the eaves of Twin Peaks. The two mountains that swelled above Noe Valley, the breasts of Mother Earth, her nipples to the sky. San Francisco was festive during the holidays. The row houses that had once seemed so impossibly mashed together, you couldn't even floss them, Kate had complained when she and Sandy had moved there from Seattle, were decked out in wreaths and bows. The front porch pillars of a 19th century Victorian was wrapped to look like candy canes. The house next to them boasted so many red lights, the owner kept them up year-round, that sometimes the power flickered and the television zapped off when Kate and Sandy were watching ESPN. Kate had grown up with white Christmases in Spokane, and believed that Christmas lights were supposed to glisten through snow. But the city's efforts were inspiring, and Kate sighed in admiration when she saw that the weather vane on top of the turret of the Victorian across the street had been changed from a rooster to an angel. Except for the lack of seasonal snow, Kate felt that San Francisco was an ideal place to live. No snow, and there was the earthquake risk but she counseled the children and Consuelo on how to stand in the doorways to avoid falling bricks. She'd prepared and dated gallons of water in the basement, adding a teaspoon of chlorine bleach for preservation. There were jars of aspirin and peanut butter, cases of spam, who would eat it otherwise, Carmex for lip blisters, Vaseline that had many uses, and two boxes of Super Kotex to soap up blood on wounded heads. And if the house collapsed into the basement, burying her stash, she had the backup plan of the Eddie Bauer knapsack under their bed. It was stuffed with camper's dry food, water, a Swiss army knife, and $100 in cash that Sandy kept using for pizza money. Kate was good at shutting down risks, at backup plans. She felt confident about earthquakes. It was those risks she couldn't do anything about that troubled her. The grocery bags were getting heavy as she passed her minivan parked on the street a half block from her house. 
She pulled the bags up closer to her chest. It occurred to her that she didn't remember locking her car. By leaning against the van, she balanced the groceries between her and the door, jiggling the door handle to see whether it was locked. It was. A man in his late thirties with a pointy beard and wearing a wool cape nodded at her as she passed. Usually, she gave little thought to the local flavor of the neighborhoods. Naked painted men on roller skates, men dressed as women, women dressed as men, all on non-Halloween days, but this man gave her a peculiar feeling. As she flailed with the bags, attempting to heave one to her hip, she dropped one, and the jar of maraschino cherries exploded on the sidewalk. The man turned. He grabbed the can of pineapple tidbits before it could careen into the street. He helped gather up the rest, and urging her to take care, continued on his way. Later that evening, when she went back to get a book she'd left in the car, there was a business card tucked under her windshield wiper. Axel Staperfiend, psychoanalyst. Give me a call, he'd written on the back in black letters, as perfectly as if he'd typed it. Kate normally disregarded things left on windshields, but she had a strong feeling it had been left by the man in the cape. What on earth had prompted him to leave his card like that? He'd probably noted the way she checked the door handle and had mistaken it for a neuroses, like Peter the Red's drawer shutting. But she, as an accountant, triple-checking her numbers for accuracy, got to do things like that. Cape or no cape, he was probably an improvement over that dreadful Dr. Fuller. Kate considered that maybe she should check this Axel person out. Even Peter the Red deserved a good therapist. Hi, I'm back. Thanks for listening. So Kate is still trying to straddle two worlds, work and home. Bringing the kids to work is never easy. I'm sure you've tried it. This wearing different hats is a subject that I wanted to tackle when I started writing False Alarm. I think you have to be inspired by some idea or subject to get started writing a novel because you're going to have to spend a lot of time with it. I like to have a mental picture of the characters. So sometimes I start with people I know. It doesn't have to be anyone I know well, even someone I just met or just sold me coffee or anything. Lately, I've been clipping photos of people that could be my characters. Because if I don't have a clear face, I don't think the readers will either. I guess I'm visual that way. I've started using these storyboards pinning up photos on a corkboard for a future novel, which is set in Spokane, that I want to write. I pick up news clippings from the time period, and the story is starting to feel real to me. When people come into my office, they always ask about it. I guess it looks really obsessive or something. My walls are covered. It's funny I keep coming back to Spokane. I, I guess you write where you lived and where you have ties to. Like Stephen King is always writing about Bangor, Maine. I always like to have a character from Spokane, where Kate is from, and where her mother, Virginia, lives. I've always thought the place was enchanting. It's always featured on that TV show, Unsolved Mysteries. Maybe it's where you went to high school. My girlfriends and I always thought we could catch the South Hill jogging rapist, who was sometimes seen streaking across Manitou Park. So to me, the town is always a mystery, and I continue to write about it until it becomes a character itself, like 
The town likes to brag that Bing Crosby grew up there, and it has this historic Davenport Hotel where Dashiell Hammett once lived and wrote scenes about the place in the Maltese Falcon. I'm sure you've got a special place, too, so write down why it is for you. Thanks. Talk to you next week. Bye. For more information, please go to my website, heatherstallings.com. I'd love to hear from you. Please go on iTunes and give this podcast five stars. False Alarm is available cheap on the Kindle, and Amazon sells it in paperback. Please write a review on Amazon, Smashwords, or Goodreads. Thanks again, and talk to you next week. Till soon.